Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Film is Lit. <laughs> Never gets old. Never gets old. Play us in, John Williams. Play us in. Yes. <laughs> that was the legendary John Williams. John, <laughs> thanks for stopping by. Welcome to Film is Lit, the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or television adaptation. This is a full spoilers podcast for both the book and the movie. So just wanted to put that out there so everyone knows that mm -hmm. uh, right up top we sometimes we forget to mention that should be obvious but anyways we're analyzing these books and movies in full and today we are covering the groundbreaking revolutionary film from the equally groundbreaking and entertaining novel michael crichton's jurassic park Ooh, this is this is gonna be a fun one. We've been yeah. waiting for this. My name is Danny. I am the film expert, self-appointed. My name is Laura, and I'm the literature expert here. <laughs> here, here. In this room. <laughs> Amen. And yeah, we have a fun as heck conversation coming up. I can't wait. It, it, a long time coming, but we we finally gotten around to covering Jurassic. Puck. And uh, yeah, this is the first time I had read the book. Same. Had watched the movie an unknown amount of times. I I've lost count. It it's kind of hard to really wrap my head around the amount of times I've watched this. I can't really come up with a number. And I guess that ties into our journeys. Sure. Uh, I'll Take just start. Yeah. So away. this movie, like a lot of people of my generation and even adults, my parents, it kind of was always a part of my life. Mm -hmm. I have two older brothers, one who's four years older than me, Tim, and one who's eight years older than me, Matt. And they would watch this movie on a loop because we had the VHS. And it was a little too scary for me when I was young, but I'd watch it, you know, from the corner of the living room. And I... would behind a pillow. Yeah, from behind a pillow and, and hide when uh, the T-Rex would come. But... <laughs> and Matt would see you and go, hey, and yeah, and, at you and, and then punch me. No, I'm kidding. No. Um, and the beauty of this movie is that it is intense and scary, but it is, I would say, a family friendly oh, movie. And yeah. by the time I was, I don't know, seven, I was probably old enough by that age to watch it and not be totally terrified. Sure. And yeah, I've uh, re I revisit it almost every three or four years. It, yeah, it just completely holds up what it did for film. Mm -hmm. Completely revolutionized blockbusters and special effects and mm. uh, animatronics and storytelling in general. This is a game changer. It stands next to films like The Matrix, maybe going back to like Godfather as films that where every single scene is iconic mm -hmm. and their legacy is as important as its entertainment value, if that makes any sense. Yeah, not only scenes, right? Also just the dialogue, the one-liners in here. Yeah. Hold on to your butts, clever girl. Oh, yeah. How could we get through the 90s without those lines? Crazy son of a bitch, you did it. Yeah. <laughs> All, yeah. yeah, the amazing script, an amazing film. It's obvious. I mean, I said spoilers at the top, but that was more for the book because everyone has seen this movie. If, you sit, if you're one of those people who's like, oh, I've never seen Jurassic Park, you're lying. Uh, that's well, that's you know not really true. You know how many times I've seen this movie? Twice. Twice. That is, that is a little messed up. My parents robbed me of having this from growing I'm uh, going to have a talk with Pete and Rebecca because that's unacceptable. <laughs> Actually, but... Yeah, are you done with your journey? I'm done. Yeah, well, see, that's the weird thing. I grew up in the 90s, too, and I didn't grow up with this movie. I don't know why. Truly, I, I don't know why. I should have asked my parents before we recorded because I would say that this is a very family-friendly movie. The only thing that I think makes it slightly older than maybe like a, you know, like a kid kid watching it, maybe like three to five years old, 
is because the acting is so good that you really feel as terrified as the actors are around the dinosaurs. Yeah. Like, the two kids that are in here, Lex and Timmy, are really terrified. You know, you can feel their energy coming off the screen. So I understand how that would be scary for a young child. But this movie is fun. I could honestly watch it on a loop now. Yeah. We turned it off last night and I was like, honestly, let's go again. Like, re-rack it. Yeah. The weird thing is too, like I grew up watching Land Before Time and the dinosaurs. So I clearly loved dinosaurs. I just don't know why this didn't make it into my childhood. But you know what is interesting though? Watching this even now, there's a lot of stuff that bring back memories of me growing up. So you know that it had to be a pretty big cultural phenomenon for it to have like leaked into my system. Yeah. Even though I hadn't seen the movie. Like actually there's this one shot of the gift shop on Jurassic Park and I saw these plush dinosaurs that are kind of big. And I don't know how to describe them, but they're kind of like pop art painted mm-hmm. colors and they're like plush. I even think I might have had one of those dinosaurs. So like a lot of the stuff that's in this movie just brings back a lot of memories. And the theme as well i mean you can't run away from that theme it's so beautiful like iconic when i was reading this book there were so many times where i would just find myself whistling like i was just whistling it because it just like gets into your system oh this is such a fun movie the book i've only read once this was the first time reading it i liked it a lot it was a great summer read uh we were in otis massachusetts on the lake when i was reading this and it was like a just yeah. a fun summer book. Like, I would highly recommend this. There, It's not perfect. I think the movie is perfect. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's fun. I uh, suggest reading it. Yeah, I listened to the book, an audiobook, and I really wish that I had uh, read this because it has all those visual components yeah. in the novel, like a lot of pictures and, like, graphs and stuff like that. And also, there's so much action that happens in the book mm-hmm. that... You kind of need to have your full attention for everything to know, like, okay, where the characters are, what they're doing, where the dinosaurs are, how the dinosaurs are attacking that. Sometimes when you're listening to audiobook, your attention can wane. And I would find myself being like, wait a second, I don't know where I am right now. And I'd have to rewind 10 mm-hmm. seconds. And I think, yeah, it kind of lessened, if you will, the experience for me. I think the book is just all right, and we'll we'll get to that um, in a second. But yeah, we we both read the book. Mm. Yeah, so this is going to be an interesting conversation because there are movie adaptations of books that are identical in structure and plot uh, to the source material, and then there are other adaptations that are only similar in name and take certain ideas and are and go in a, a different direction and completely add or change characters all that jurassic park is rare in that it's kind of right in the middle for the most part all the general plot points are there and the same characters are there but almost every single scene in the movie goes down differently than what it does in the book not one scene in the movie like follows the scene from the book exactly Mm -hmm. and characters who die in the book survive in the movie and uh, vice versa characters who survive in the book some of them die in the movie it's very interesting the changes made instead of a few major changes there were like 10,000 little changes, Mm. right? Yeah, like they glorified certain characters and vilified others. But for the most part, it's the same story, same plot, just some things were cut out, which is normal for a movie, but other scenes were just tweaked ever so slightly for like instead of one person going to the room, it's another person going to a room. It's like, it's it's that kind of adaptation mm-hmm. where the, the general structure and soul is completely there. And that's fitting because Michael Crichton adapted this into a screenplay, at least the first draft. And then frequent Spielberg collaborator David Kep came and retooled Michael Crichton's script completely to mm-hmm. create uh, the shooting script for the movie that we see today. Yeah, I think it's so fun to think about being the author of a novel or a story and then having your hands in it when it's adapted to a screenplay because I feel like it's just another 
opportunity to edit. Yeah. Right? And, like, I don't know exactly what Michael Crichton changed, but one of my favorite changes is that Lex is not aggressively abrasive. And insufferable. <laughs> insufferable. And stupid. Like, whiny. Whiny. Yeah. Just, like, the most annoying character. And they completely flipped the script, literally. Yeah. Uh, when they made Lex older and interested in computers... Whereas they front-loaded all of the character development into Timmy in the book. Like, not only is he the one who's interested in dinosaurs, he's also the one who's interested in computers. And Lex got no character development in the book. And they completely evened that out a lot better oh, yeah. in the movie. I love Lex's character. She's so great. Yeah, and she has some of the most iconic moments yeah. uh, in the movie. He left us. Yeah. He left yeah. yeah, Spielberg is such an expert at visual cues. I mean, my personal favorite moment is when she's eating Jello, and yeah. you completely understand her fear when she goes silent and her eyes widen, but the Jello is still moving, like she's yeah. starting to shake. Yeah. And what a perfect! I mean, it seems simple now that we're talking about it to have the character eating Jello, but these are the tiny little details that Spielberg puts into his movie to elevate his films above the rest well the ripples in the water cup oh yeah signaling that the t-rex is behind them like that is maybe one of the most iconic scenes in film history yeah like, it's so iconic that when i was watching it i'm like oh i get it like in jurassic park and i'm like wait a second i'm watching jurassic park this is where it came from right but with lex you know the last thing that someone would accuse me of being as a social justice warrior but in the book lex is such an unflattering portrait of a little girl yeah that it's i almost kind of got offended for like all girls it's really bad um, like not only is she stubborn which you know that could be a character trait but she's stubborn to the point of like multiple times she gives away their hiding spot because she's just like I don't want to do this or like why do I have to stay hidden or like it's like so dumb yeah most of her lines are like I'm hungry or this yes. is boring or yeah. I'm tired or I'm scared yeah <laughs> it's uh was jarring to see that character knowing what she is in the movie and um yeah the actress play who played Lex her name is Ariana Richards. Didn't hasn't acted in a lot after this movie, but yeah, she was in Tremors, which is kind of oh, like Tremors. Yeah, loosely inspired by Dune, like the Sandworms, but also Jurassic Park, and yeah, just a few other films. But mostly so known for I love, this. I love her in this. Her character is just so great and well developed. I think. Yeah. Let's get into some backstory about the book. Sure, yeah, I have some notes if you... Yeah, go ahead. So, it was published in 1990 by Michael Crichton, who sadly died at only the age of 66 from lymphoma. He died in 2008. Can you believe that? Yeah. Uh, he he made the most of his writing career, though. He yeah. He wrote, um, what was... I looked up a couple. The Andromeda... Strain, Strain, yeah, uh, Timeline, Timeline, Twister. Yeah, he wrote a lot. Sphere, which is not a good movie, but a oh, good book. Interesting, <laughs> I haven't read that. But he also he was a Harvard grad. He went to Harvard Medical School. I found that out because I was kind of looking into why he was so interested in science. And I guess what I came up with was like he was just very interested in technology and technology's consequences yeah and like that comes through in this book and movie oh actually yeah. <laughs> i think it's really interesting because more than a lot of novels the theme of this book is explicit not only in words in the text but also in the visuals like you were saying yeah there are seven sections of this book and they're called iterations and every iteration is sort of the creation or the further creation of this fractal called a dragon curve. And obviously the character Ian Malcolm, who, by the way, I had also a little bit of a problem with him in the book because he became a little preachy. Like there, there were some times where he had like pages yeah. of a monologue and I was like, okay, this is clearly like a Michael 
Crichton rant. Like, yes. He is oh, yeah. Ian Malcolm. Yes. And I was like, okay, like, Co- he can shut up a little bit. Completely agreed. For every yeah. speech that Ian Malcolm gives in the movie, he gives six speeches in the book. Yeah, that's a really good way of saying it. And they punched up his character really successfully because he's not as arrogant i think he's a little arrogant in the movie but it's fun right? yeah like he's, he's a rock star learning. jeff yeah. jeff yeah. goldblum is a rock star <laughs> everyone loves yeah. jeff goldblum he's so great in this movie yeah. he, again like i'm just gonna have to say it he's iconic he's another iconic character yeah and his lines when he's flirting with dr Sattler. Sattler are just hilarious. Yeah. And when he's talking to Dr. Grant, too, that line when Dr. Grant's like, you married? And he says, occasionally. Yeah. (laughs) Always looking for a future ex, Mrs. Malcolm. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, he's an absolute rock star, which is so at odds with the fact that he's a chaos theory, you know, PhD. Yeah. (laughs) It's so funny. He's this, like, mathematician that's also a rock star. Just a funny character. But, like, we were saying earlier... His speeches in the book are just so preachy. And that's what I mean by the fact that, like, the themes that Michael Crichton wanted to discuss through this novel are almost, like, denovelized. You know what I mean? Like, they're... He decoded everything he was trying to say so intensely that it became really dry in a lot of places. (laughs) Well, it's indicative of my problems with the book is that there's simply too much. It's an embarrassment of riches. The point is made, and then Michael Crichton continues to go on from there. And that's kind of my feeling of the whole second half of the book in terms of the action. The The movie wisely cuts down a few legs of Dr. Grant and the kids' journey through the park. It just completely yeah, visitor back, center. Yeah, it just yeah. completely removes it. And it, it's all exciting stuff in the book. There's simply too much. Yeah, it got, unfortunately, got very repetitive. And I have a hypothesis of what Michael Crichton was trying to do. Just He just didn't quite do it successfully. The whole idea of fractals comes up through the idea of the seven iterations. So I wanted to, I had to look up the definition of a fractal, even though it was talked about kind of ad nauseum in the novel. But so the definition of a fractal is a curve or geometric figure, each a part of which has the same statistical characteristic as the whole. So I think what he was trying to do was create that whole idea of like, iterations like their travel back toward the visitor center is an iteration of them coming into contact with dinosaurs yeah and like every time it happens like you know you can't control what's going to happen and some like a new outcome could happen because you know you can't control what's going on however they always survive those iterations right. so it's kind of like you do know what's going to happen though and like yeah. so that kind of goes against the whole idea of like chaos theory and how you can't control these animals even though they tried so hard to so and it just became repetitive like it was yeah. just boring and like we, you were saying like in the movie every time they come into contact with a dinosaur it's terrifying yeah like you don't know if they're gonna survive you kind of think well they're kids so like probably they are but a lot of people die like there are a lot of casualties so that's just that heightens the tension a lot more and i think the way that they use that tension is just a lot it's a lot clearer about how little they can control these animals yeah and the book definitely goes into the chaos theory and the Malcolm effect more so than the movie. And that's yeah. that's what I liked. I didn't like Malcolm's endless speeches because the message was clear yeah. that, you know, don't play God. The dangers of unsupervised science are catastrophic. And, like, you can't be frivolous with scientific power, like specifically genetic engineering. This isn't an anti-science story. It's an anti I guess, taking advantage of science with no discipline story. Yeah, no controls, no restrictions, no regulations. Yeah. In fact, it was really interesting. I found this article called Jurassic Park as a means of discussing fractals, chaos theory, and scary movies. This by this guy named Tim Peters. And what I found interesting was that he thought that the movie should have gone into chaos theory more and sort of made a correlation between 
chaos theory and thrillers, like the genre of thrillers and action movies. Because if you think about it, like, you know, dinosaurs can be considered a part of that chaos and something that like throws chaos into your life. But I think, I think he's wrong. I think if they had gone into that more, this would have been a more closely reflected the book, which just wouldn't have worked. And he's saying, he's saying like, Oh, like, you know, they made it into this blockbuster, which is just making money and all this stuff. And I was like, it's a blockbuster, but like, it's a great fucking movie. Yeah. Like, this oh, is yeah. something that doesn't hold up. You know, like, this is still very relevant. In fact, I, are you familiar with the technology of CRISPR? No. It's, so CRISPR is a genetic, it's like fairly new genetic editing technology that came out around like 2011. It's very controversial because basically what you can use CRISPR for is to edit the genome of whatever you're working with. And while it's very widely used in a lot of genetic research and a lot of like genetic medicines and stuff like that, um, the thing that's really concerning and controversial about this technology is that actually only a few years ago, this is like 2018 or 19, a Chinese scientist used CRISPR technology to edit the genes of the two twin sisters to be resistant to HIV. However, the problem is we don't know the long-term effects of that, right? So like by removing the genes that would allow HIV to infect these two babies, like what else is on those gene sequences that they took out? Like, mm-hmm. you know, that could mean that they could spontaneously die when they're 16. Like we don't know what else those genes code for. So like that introduces the whole idea of like the dangers of this kind of technology and just like doing it without regulation and saying like, oh, let's see what happens. Yeah. Right. Like this is a very modern issue. CRISPR has been in the news all the time because of how dangerous it could potentially be. And it also like, I don't know if you've read the, the book, My Sister's Keeper, but it's about like parents basically genetically engineering a baby to have like so they can harvest the girl's like liver to give to her sister because her liver's failing. Oh, no. It's like so it's a very like it's a very modern issue is what I'm saying. Yeah. Like this this isn't something that like died in the 90s. Like sure it's about cloning dinosaurs, but this is a very ongoing conversation about like genetic cloning and Yeah. stuff editing. Yeah. The strength of the book is striking up that conversation about the limits of Mm -hmm. science and scientism and uh, how unsupervised scientific power can lead to destruction. And I I just wasn't very familiar with chaos theory. I had only known about it through this movie because Ian Malcolm mentions it in the helicopter on the way to Ila Nublar. And that's my favorite part of the book, and it actually enhances the movie, and I'll explain that. So I love this movie. It's it's my number five favorite movie in my top 100. This hits at number five. But, you know, I always thought if I were to come up with one criticism, it's that all the problems seem to happen on one night at a very specific time. And that's why everything goes to shit. Mm-hmm. Like, that, you know, it, it kind of seems like just a bunch of coincidences happening at once leading to the dinosaurs getting out. But what chaos theory postures is that when you mess with the natural world and create a foundation that is unstable, the Malcolm effect, which was coined by the character Ian Malcolm in the story, eventually if you have an unstable foundation in an already sketchy environment, an environment that can be a workplace or can just be a, a person doing something, eventually things will start going wrong like a domino effect and each and yeah it'll snowball build on itself i'm like oh that makes sense Mm -hmm. for everything to go wrong on this very specific time on this certain night because they can't contain the natural world or or this um ecosystem as ian malcolm said earlier on in the film and in the book he says this life finds a way Right. All it took were the right conditions, the power to be off for 18 minutes. Yeah. And for them to not know that the dinosaurs are breeding for everything to go wrong. Right. All it took was just three. Because 
in the past, in the park, stuff would go wrong here and there, but they would fix it. But then once you bring up multiple factors, multiple things going wrong, then you get the snowball effect. So I'm like, oh, that makes sense for the whole park to break down and for the dinosaurs to get loose because chaos theory is in full force. We see it yeah. in front of our eyes. No, I'm glad you brought this up because I think that gets to the kernel of why this movie is such a classic and it is above and beyond what a lot of normal movies are. Because when you approach a movie, you know that it's a linear storyline, which is not totally realistic in, in life, right? Like, storylines aren't always linear. But you have to accept that to accept what you're going to be watching, right? And get something from it. Yes. This takes that idea of a linear story and goes how can we make that realistic in a way like it is theoretical but yeah. the coincidences make sense if you introduce this idea of chaos theory yeah and they did it right and i feel like that's the difference between something like okay i'm gonna bring up one of my favorite shows but fleabag fleabag created a function for the character to be talking to the camera Whereas Sex in the City, which I love because it's a silly show. And, hey, you know, we all have our guilty pleasures. Yeah, whatever. But there was no function for Carrie to be talking to the camera. And we saw a failure of that story mechanism because very early in the first season, they pulled that back a lot. Like in the pilot, she's literally talking, like reacting to things that would happen in her own life while she's with other people to the camera. It didn't make sense. So they pulled that out. Fleabag gave that a function. And that's why that show blows any other take to the camera out of the water because they didn't have that. Mm -hmm. That to me is like what chaos theory gives to this movie. Right. Yeah. Did I just do like a whole like Charlie Day board on the wall and <laughs> no 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 it makes sense it, it would have been like that if it didn't make sense but okay. um it, does make sense. it actually makes sense and a uh, fun side note about fleabag it's such a well-written show that i didn't even get the function of why she was talking to the camera uh, until you explained it to me but i actually did i actually have a different interpretation of it but it but it doesn't matter oh, at all okay. well yeah we need to stop talking about it because i'm going to talk about it in a different planned episode and i don't want to like run myself out yeah flea... of talking discussions during <laughs> this episode because i'm not even talking about it flea bag is so hilarious but devastating that it, it's good enough on its own and, and we can discuss the talking to the camera later because okay. yeah i know yeah, we had different yeah, yeah, but anyways <laughs> let's get back to your initial point of how the book fully explains chaos theory which makes what i thought were coincidences evaporate it's not coincidences at all it's actually what chaos theory postures is that no a cascading amount of problems is natural with a weak foundation yeah. and jurassic park as we are explaining was a clearly bad idea because these scientists john hammond and dr Wu were playing God and they had an unchecked amount of power and to quote Ian Malcolm, they're so concerned of if we could that we ne that they never considered if they should. Right. And that's kind of, again, the whole point, you get it with one line, the book, you have a few, sometimes compelling, but sometimes just unnecessary uh, monologues by Ian Malcolm as he's kind of slowly dying while he's high on morphine after yeah. um, getting attacked by the T-Rex. That's a difference we should yeah. talk about. So in the book, it's Ian Malcolm who leaves the two Jeeps mm -hmm. during the T-Rex attack and gets mauled and his... Uh, his legs get chomped off. Yes, right. Or like very One, severely like, bitten. Yeah. 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 What the movie does is it puts all the negative aspects of certain characters into Gennaro. Yeah, poor In the movie, this is such a trope of Spielberg movies. I love the guy, but <laughs> all his movies, they usually have that one character who's like a smarmy little greedy white guy who's just like, actually, I'm the authority and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Start looking out for that in other movies. I mean, like every- Danny look out for this? Every, yes, every Spielberg <laughs> movie has just like a, usually a lawyer character who's like, eh, well, I'm the authority here. And 
And yeah, so they make Gennaro that character in the book. He's much more three-dimensional, and he he is greedy and is looking forward to making money off this park, but once the danger becomes apparent, then he becomes like an active member of mm. the crew trying to save everyone, and, and he, he still has moments of cowardice mm -hmm. and of selfishness. Right. But he's a fully fleshed out character in the book, and that's one of the few instances where the book is better than the movie. Although, it's better in the movie because you need to see the dinosaur eat someone. And yeah. it's so satisfying he's when Gennaro gets, when toilet. he, yeah, sitting on the toilet and um, he gets chomped up. And instead of running away, Ian Malcolm tries to save the yeah. kids because the dinosaur is about to chomp on those kids in the jeep and then ian malcolm lights the flare in that famous shot where jeff goldblum is waving the flare in front of the dinosaur as it's raining and then the dinosaur runs after him and then yeah. he and then yeah so the dinosaur knocks ian malcolm into the tiki bathroom <laughs> yeah. and yeah and then eats Gennaro. so yeah. those are two big changes right there i also just wanted to mention how absolutely in love I am with Gennaro's costume design. Did you notice that he goes in with suit shorts? No. <laughs> okay, okay. Next time you watch Jurassic suit Park, <laughs> look out for when they first arrive in the visitor center. And he's super excited. So Gennaro's like running ahead of the group up the stairs and he's wearing suit shorts. <laughs> it's, so basically like he's wearing a tailored suit but because he's on this island, instead of wearing, like, suit pants, yeah. he's gotten, like, suit shorts tailored so that he can, like, move around. I, I noticed that, and I just absolutely, I was like, who thought of that? Because that's so fucking hilarious. Yeah, so that's, and the, the performance is good. Uh, the actor is Martin Ferrero playing Gennaro. <laughs> it's a good character. Like I said, even though it is one-dimensional. And yeah, I it's, mean, it's funny because even John Hammond kind of, like, brings your attention to it what he's like oh you know i always hate lawyers and you know you're so greedy i hate working with lawyers he says that a couple times and it's like at least they're self-aware i guess yeah. that they're making that character they're kind of piling the negative characteristics into this one guy but i mean doesn't bother me it's right funny. because you kind of need that in you you need clear-cut villains and yeah. heroes yeah. and that's exactly what this movie does so, speaking oh are we going to talk about the same I was going to mention Muldoon. Muldoon, okay, yes. Speaking of like a heroic character that they kind of took out, he's in the movie, to be fair, but he doesn't get as much of a backstory, which I guess if you're going to cut out a backstory, like it might as well be his. The thing that I thought was kind of weird was like, I was expecting him to be black. Is that racist of me? Because he's from like Africa. I, but, so in the movie, he has a South African accent. So I think, I, I don't know in the book. I, I was so used to him in the movie that I just pictured him as the white okay. guy. But I, I think, I don't think they explain it in the book, but Maybe I think they he's... never say it, but for some reason I just read him, because he was this really interesting character. Like, he was a safari guide and a big gameskeeper for multiple zoos. I think they mentioned him in, like, Australia and Africa and North America and so he got a really cool backstory that isn't good in this movie, but the movie character is also really cool. And he delivers one of the most interesting lines in the whole show. Yeah, he's uh, my favorite character. Oh, really? In the movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. great. Yeah, he has the best moments. I mean, Clever Girl, that is probably... Yeah. this Again, everyone knows every scene and every line, yeah. but Clever Girl, that's textbook setup and payoff yeah earlier on in the movie dr grant yes, dr yes. grant explains how raptors attack how they flank you yep. they draw you in with someone in the middle and they flank you from the sides the payoff is at the end muldoon is about to shoot a raptor and then the raptor comes by and then there's that mutual appreciation where he goes right. clever girl you got me and that's the end of muldoon not only is it a great line because of the payoff but it's also a great line because if you blow that line out to mean clever girl as in like nature yeah is the clever like mother nature is the force that created these these extremely intelligent beings 
that kind of is what the movie's about. Right? Yeah. Like that line is about how clever nature is. Even though there's not a set direction for nature, nature also selected the dinosaurs out. Yeah. <laughs> and now like they've lost control of that, right? Like I just think like that that one line is the movie. Yeah. Couldn't nature agree is more. Nature cleverer than humans. Like, yeah. You know, Life found a way. Life found a way, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, so great, I, great line. Yeah, Love Muldoon in the movie the actor's name is bob peck he also wasn't in a lot in his life he died young in his in his 50s but he just has these expressive eyes and another one of my favorite lines from him is when he's talking about the raptors in their the raptor cage and he's talking about how the raptors test certain areas of the fence of the Mm. perimeter to check if it's electric and he said they remember and you're like holy crap we're Mm. we're not just messing with some wild boars here like these are beasts these are raptors and they plan they have pack like hunting yeah abilities abilities they're smart they're ruthless and that pays off in the latter half of the film but you had mentioned Dr. Hammond, so let's let's get into the differences between his character in the movie and the book. Yeah, the book John Hammond is definitely more of that humility-less creator, kind of money-hungry, definitely doesn't even really care about his grandkids, right? Yeah. Like, he just, like, brings them to the island because their parents are getting divorced, and he's just kind of like, sure, like... You know, we'll use them as guinea pigs, basically, and, like, yeah. doesn't care about them Very. when they get stranded. I guess he, he, you know, he rants a little bit to the staff about, like, why are they not back at the visitor center? But it's more because, like, he's worried about what the park, the backlash that the park is going to get right. if they get in trouble, rather than actually being, like, oh, shit, like, my grandkids could be dead right now, right? Like, that, Yeah, that was the biggest shock to me while reading the book was how little... Hammond yeah. cared. I, I was expecting him, just knowing the movie, for him to constantly be checking in, but he does maybe once. Right. Yeah, Crichton is quoted saying that he wanted Hammond to be like a dark version of Walt Disney, and that certainly oh, like that. that certainly comes across. Oh yeah. Um, in the book, it was actually his idea to make him more aware and uh, less selfish in the movie, and then okay. David Kep added on to that and made him more likable and self-aware yeah it made him survive right in the end another another change is that the whole time dr grant's dig is already being funded by john hammond Mm -hmm. and so john that's another way that he's kind of a darker character because he uses that and he kind of blackmails right them and says like i'll fully take your money away if you yeah. don't come down and endorse my park. Like, they don't have as much of a choice as they do in the movie where he does dangle that in front of them. He's like, I will continue to fund your dig for the next three years. Yeah. And you don't have to write any grants to get the money. I'll give it to you if you come down to my park. And they're like, well, And give me the yeah, approval. Yeah. Right? Like, they're, so there's, there's a lot less darkness, I think, to his character. And also, to his credit in the movie... He is concerned about the kids. He helps. He's a critical helper in a couple times, like when they have to shut the power down and restart the power. He's the one who's giving the instructions to Dr. Sattler. So I think he's a fun character in the movie. He's just kind of like a, like a, he was so excited about the idea that he didn't place any restrictions on himself rather than like, in the book where he very well knows that this is a dangerous idea and he continuously hides evidence that it's been dangerous. Like with the, you know, the deaths of some of the park staff, he actively hides that in the book rather than just kind of being like, oh, it'll be fine. Like, or the fact that he built a bomb like shelter in the basement, but in the book, he doesn't tell anyone about that because that would be admitting that stuff could go really wrong here, which it does. Or in the movie, once stuff goes wrong, they immediately go, let's go down to the shelter. And, and they, that's where Muldoon gets the weapons and Hammond talks to Ellie over the radio. Yeah, in, in the movie, Hammond is deftly aware of the dangers of the situation once stuff goes wrong. Mm-hmm. But in the book, he goes into insane denial about that anything is wrong. And even as the body count piles up and his grandkids go missing, he's still just stubborn and 
not trying to figure out how to make the park park the next park better so this i completely retooled the character and in the book very deservingly so hammond dies eaten alive yeah or at least poisoned before he's eaten by these these little uh scavenger dinos yeah (laughs) yeah scavenger dino sound yeah, so, and in the original draft of Michael Crichton's script, he had him and die, but he would, he sacrificed himself so the kids could survive, like, during their raptor attack, but, mm. yeah, so David kept... like, a little darker. Yeah. I can see how, if they wanted it to be a little more family-friendly, right? Might have not have happened, yeah. And it's, it's satisfying to see Hammond realizing the failure of yeah. his plan and of his park and how he, he realizes that... He is one of the people who, as Ian Malcolm said, abused science with no discipline, and now the consequences are running amok. Mm -hmm. Or another one of my favorite lines is when Hammond is saying, like, theme parks break down all the time. But then Ian Malcolm says, well, John, when the Pirates of the Caribbean ride breaks down, the pirates don't kill the passengers. (laughs) Yeah, so that is again the metaphor tracks it's very simple very funny quippy lines the book you have like five of those lines and it's not as subtle subtlety is key well you know another brilliant way that this movie furthers exposition two ways that i want to talk about the first one is how they introduce how genetics work because in the 1990s genetics was not super well understood i think by the average person not that it is now i guess but you know people know that we use dna to solve crimes and stuff like that right like it's pretty in the popular i don't know it's like a household science i would say right the way that they do that in the movie they don't use a scientist to explain it which michael Crichton does in the book again a little bit ad nauseum like there are multiple times where people explain the science and they're just talking But in the movie, they create this kind of cartoon. Yeah. Mr. DNA. Educational cartoon with Mr. DNA. Kind of like in a a little um, amphitheater, like you would sit in for Star Tours at Disneyland. Yeah. And that interactive piece is so smart. Right? Like, it doesn't feel like exposition. You know it is. Right. But it's not. And the other way that that happens, it's not about the genetic piece. It's about teaching people about the dinosaurs when they're on the truck track, I guess, is the little voice on the inside of the truck. That is in the book. But I think that they use it so well in the movie. And I just wanted to contrast it with the joke of... How in Austin Powers, his handler's name is Basil Exposition. Right. <laughs> I just wanted to point that out because we'll never talk about Austin Powers as an adaptation of literature, unfortunately. Actually, I guess we could with a James Bond novel. But anyway, I just think it's so funny that like the way that movies and books can be can bungle exposition created the joke that a character's name is actually exposition in the Austin Powers series. Yeah. But in this, exposition is so deftly done yeah. that you almost, it's like you see it happening and you're like, I'm fine with it. Right. <laughs> because this is so clever. Yeah, because normally you would want to show, not tell when it comes to exposition. But sure. this is a case where this info needs to be explained to the audience just so you know how they did what they did. And first off, it's interesting. Second off, it's a way to condense a hundred pages in the novel into two minutes. Yeah. I mean, incredible that they did it. The incredible. fact that David Kep and Michael Crichton weren't nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay is a travesty. I mean, that is... We were taught that in screenwriting class, that Mr. DNA scene. Of oh, really? This is how you explain exposition. It's a very organic way because like guests in a park, audience members are guests i guess to the viewing experience and you need certain aspects spoon-fed to you sure and this is again very organic and natural they're in a theme park this is what would happen you'd step into a ride or step into the tour and the tour guide or the video would explain like how the park came to be what the dinosaurs are and then you'd go on the tour i mean it it all makes perfect sense well even the chaos theory think of how boring it would be to watch someone deliver a speech on chaos theory 
in a summer blockbuster. Yeah. But we get the information delivered through a funny character while he's flirting with someone trying to impress them. That is smart screenwriting. Yeah. Agreed. And yeah, the script wasn't nominated at all. The movie was I don't only get that. Yeah. <laughs> it, Steven Spielberg wasn't nominated for best director, believe it or not. He was nominated the same year, however, for Schindler's List, which he made right after he made this movie. Both Schindler's List and Jurassic Park were released in 1993. Okay. I, I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know that, but the funny thing is like, okay, so my favorite Paul Simon album is still crazy after all these years. And one time I was listening to it on YouTube and there were these comments and one of the comments was like, I didn't realize that we were supposed to try this hard. Mm -hmm. And that's how I feel about Steven Spielberg and John Williams as well. Because, I mean, yep. again, we already talked about the score. We already talked about how Steven Spielberg is just like beyond anything that anyone else can do. It's just, I yeah. didn't realize we were supposed to try that hard. Yeah. Well, he know. did. He was in Poland filming Schindler's List while the post-production was going on for this movie. And he said that was the most stressful time in his entire life to have, to have his focus be on Schindler's List. I mean, the most personal, devastating movie you could ever make. Yeah. And also have to be heavily involved in the post-production for this movie while you're across the world yeah. filming in another... I mean, just insane. But yeah, Spielberg got it done. He won Best Director and Best Picture for Schindler's List. But this movie won Best Sound, Best Sound Effects Editing, and then Best Visual Effects, obviously. And we can talk about that for days, Yes, right? it was so obvious that this movie was going to win Best VFX in 1994 that when Elijah Wood presented the Oscar, a dinosaur came out and gave him the envelope. That's how aware every... You can go on YouTube and look up the clip. <laughs> is that true? I yeah, that's no true. Idea. Yeah, Elijah Wood presented this award and a, di a dinosaur came oh out and everyone was goodness. like, yeah, obviously it's Jurassic... Like, what else would it be? I love that. I just wanted to bring up... Stan Winston is the guy who was in charge of the animatronics. Wow. Amazing. I, they look real, which I guess is the point. When they approach the, the six Triceratops... Yeah. I mean, you're right. Like, it is real. It is real. Yeah. And then Phil Tippett was in charge of the visual effects, the CGI, which is groundbreaking for the time. And like the CGI in Terminator 2, still holds up to this day. It looks better than most CGI does from certain films that came out last year. So related to this, I recently rewatched the Harry Potter movies. Uh -huh. Harry Potter number one came out in 2001. And the... Quidditch scene is atrocious. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and when I say atrocious, I mean, like, you watch that and you're like, am I literally playing this as a video game? Yep. Like, it's so bad. And that came out in 2001. That's not even that. That's, 2001 is closer to when this movie came out than it is now from now. Yes. Like, that's how atrocious the quality was in that film versus this movie. Yeah, that, that's how it is. Yeah, Phil Tippett, he worked for Industrial Light and Magic. They did the VFX for uh, the Star Wars films. Mm -hmm. And now all the Marvel films and all that. A bunch of VFX companies do those films. But anyways, they're like the seminal, the top dogs. Including yours, right? Yeah. Your studio. Mm -hmm. Shout out. Nant <laughs> Studio. Yeah, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have Phil Tippett to thank for the advent of motion capture, or at least the start of it. And then later on, it was more advanced and became what motion capture we know today. So initially, this movie was going to be stop motion animation for the dinosaurs. Oh, wow. But in early tests, it just didn't look real. Yeah. It, it didn't look good. Yeah. But what they ended up doing was putting tracking dots on the stop motion dolls and tracking the movement. So they took that data, put it into a computer, and then Phil Tippett went and animated over the tracking shots of, you know, the, the dots on the wow. on the stop motion models That's to create awesome. what we see today. Yeah. It still holds up. Only a few shots kind of look wonky, but even the wonky shots, much better than 
say, the dinosaurs in Jurassic World, which came out in 2015. Gosh. Uh, Oh, a travesty. Michael Crichton is rolling around in his grave. (laughs) Terrible storytelling. Terrible effects. It looks awful. They use, it's fully CGI dinosaurs in that movie and in, Mm -hmm. in the second one. But what they just completely missed was that, no, it's not about how many dinosaurs you can show it's about making the dinosaurs seem real yeah a lot of shots of the t-rex are just the head poking up through the trees because they could only build an animatronic that was the size of a head but that makes it scary scary because it's real yeah the human eye at least now will always detect CGI. It's just like we're not at a point yet. And I honestly don't think we ever will be at a point where we can't detect a fully CGI creation. Mm-hmm. You can enhance stuff with CGI, but a, a complete top to bottom CGI creation, people know that it's not real. Mm-hmm. But when you bring in real elements, you know, it becomes tangible. It becomes a threat. You can see yourself there. Yeah. The new movies. Jurassic World movies just completely miss the point and the mark, and they show them. I mean, learn from another Spielberg movie, Jaws. Mm-hmm. You know, this is something we learned in film school, too. Jaws is so scary because you don't see the shark until the ending. Mm-hmm. So don't just show... You won't get this experience of awe and fear if they're just out in the open, fully CG, you know it's fake. Ah, oh, Jurassic World. I I hate that movie. I hate that movie. Danny's on record. He hates that movie. Michael Crichton would too. I I'm sorry. All right, rest in peace, Michael Crichton. But yeah. Well, anyway, um, should we move on to more characters, or what? What do you What do you feel you want to move on to next? Just thinking of, of more getting to the book of how it opens uh, and closes differently. So in the opening of the book. There's this long epilogue about how there are certain creatures, dinosaurs, in this island town off the coast of Costa Rica Mm -hmm. where certain animals are biting children and in one case eating a baby. And that comes into the sequel, the movie sequel, uh, The Lost World. It opens with a scene on the beach with these little creatures eating. And then at the end of the book, the uh, island gets bombed. Isla Nubar gets bombed. And in the movie, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. So those are those are the two kind of big differences. It's funny that they occur both in the beginning and at the end. Yeah. So I wanted to discuss those. Another subplot that they cut out in the movie, which I think was really smart, is that the time push for Dr. Grant and the kids to get back to the visitor center isn't just that they're in danger which I think lowers the tension. Their whole time push is that they saw raptors get onto this boat that's leaving the island and going back to the mainland. And they've got like 18 hours before the boat's going to land on the shore. And so that's their push to get back. And I thought that that was really dumb because the only push that they should have is that they're in danger of being eaten by dinosaurs. Like that's enough. Yeah. yeah it's th- just a subplot. That, that ticking clock... Uh, wasn't necessary like it was enough for them to just be fighting for their lives as they're going back to the visitor's center yeah to go away yeah what'd you think of the island getting uh, napalmed at the end i don't know i mean i felt like it it made sense in the in the scheme of the book yeah i guess then conversely what do you think of it being left alone at, at the end of the movie so okay so the book actually ends on a little bit of a cliffhanger you know there's going to be a second one because basically this doctor that's attending to dr grant is like you know that we're gonna have to go back and like Mm -hmm. shut this all down or whatever so they're they're immediately teeing off book two in this i also i knew that there were follow-up movies but i also know that like in 1993 they would also kind of want to tee up another one so I think it makes sense that they, like, didn't bomb it in yeah. the end. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I I think the ending of the movie is great. Like you said, it kind of ends on that shot with, like, John Hammond kind of letting it wash over him that this is not going to happen again. Like, he's not going to get a take two of this. I also love how you watch the birds from the helicopter yeah. that Dr. Grant is watching because I think 
he's also coming to the realization, like, what a dream. Oh, which, by the way, this, I was going to mention that Isla Nublar, I looked up Nublar because I wanted to know I don't speak Spanish. But online, it says that that means to cloud or to blur. Mm. And so I think that kind of is a really smart way of naming the island because it's kind of like, not only is their judgment clouded, but it's also this like dreamlike island, right? And Dr. Grant goes to this island not even knowing what he's going to find. They don't tell him that they have live dinosaurs, but this paleontologist got to be possibly the only one who was able to watch this happen in real time. And I just love at the very end that shot of him watching the pelicans glide over the ocean because I think it's his realization of like, thank God I'm studying these dinosaurs that are dead, Yeah. right? Like he was so overcome by this impossible dream when he gets to the island. But, you know, he's sort of like coming back to his original opinion of like, you know, nature selected these guys out, (laughs) you know, we're... There's a reason that humans and dinosaurs, or there's not a reason, that's not exactly the right way to say it, but there's, it's, uh, it's a positive thing that yeah. we're not moving forward with this kind of technology. We have birds, birds don't really hurt humans, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so like, this is the sort of, co- this balance has sort of been restored, right? Yeah. To quote Pet Cemetery, Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, sometimes dead is better. Ooh, and we're going to talk about it in Dr. Sleep, too. Yeah. Yeah, what I'm getting at is, yeah, if you play God, then your creations will... Hit back. Hit back, yeah. (laughs) That's such a great line. A great double feature with this movie is the little indie film, which came out a couple years ago, called Little Joe, a movie no one has seen except for my friends Sam and... Nate Barnes, shout out Sam and Nate, because I recommended this movie to them. But yeah, Little Joe, it's on Hulu. It's about a group of genetic engineers who are crafting a new type of flower that releases pheromones that make you feel good. Mm-hmm. And it has a similar message of when you mess with the natural order for seemingly no reason, then the natural order fights back. Mm-hmm. A very different movie, but I would recommend Little Joe. And I would say I'd recommend this movie too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess the biggest problem I have with the book is that up until the nine-hour mark, so the audiobook is 15 hours, the nine-hour mark is when the T-Rex attack happens. And that is amazing. And up until that point, with everything going wrong and the cascading amount of problems, that was cool. Mm -hmm. But you reach that point, and it's just dinosaur attack after dinosaur attack after dinosaur attack, and then spliced in with Ian Malcolm's very unsettled rants, which I liked, but they were just incessant. They kept on going on. And the plot is kind of dropped. And it's just yeah. a, a series of attacks. And it'd be fine if it was only three hours of that. But it's six. Mm-hmm. And I very much lost interest. I spaced out a few times. It was tough getting to the end. Uh, yeah. And the movie is just... It's almost two hours exactly. My ideal length for a movie. Yeah. It cuts all the fluff. It's all the best action, some of the best directing ever by Spielberg. The cinematography by Dean Cundey is incredible. It's always moving, always fluid. Spielberg is the master of close-ups or Mm. or Mm move-ins. Really gets up right and close and personal to these actors' faces to show their fear, their awe, their intensity, their focus. Loved it. Iconic score. Sam Neill is great as uh, Dr. Grant, Laura Dern in one oh, of her yeah, earlier roles. Laura Dern or Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah. Oh, yeah, as Arnold. And Arnold dies in both the book and the movie. Yeah, he's one of the few characters whose fate isn't switched. Yeah. Unfortunately, because yeah. <laughs> he's such a great character. And Richard uh, Attenborough, who's a filmmaker himself. And, and the younger brother of David Attenborough, mm-hmm. which I didn't realize until his name popped up on the screen. And I was like, wait a second, is that, are they related? And then I looked it up and it's true. Yeah. And Newman, uh, Wayne Knight. Yes, that's, I was going to mention, I have like some things that I wanted to wrap up with, but that was one of my things was like, every time I saw him, all I could think was Newman. 
Yeah. <laughs> and this is really exemplary of why the movie is better than the book and how it shores up a lot of Michael Crichton's ideas. So in the book, like a lot of with a lot of other characters, the deaths are prolonged and you get into it with gruesome detail, which can be cool at first, but it just happens too many times. It happens like eight times where you go into very long, excruciating detail about how the dinosaurs kill people and it's just Expose not- Expose their innards. Yeah, it's just not fun after a while. Not because I'm grossed out, just because I've already- I'm grossed out. Yeah, well, because I've already <laughs> read it like a bunch yeah, of times. Yeah, 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 yeah. But in the book, Nedry runs across a philosopher who spits the acid in his mouth and it's about like five pages of him slowly his eyes starting to burn and of the philosopher ripping open his stomach and him slowly dying in the movie they show the philosopher they show him have his gills like around his head mm -hmm. and rat and like rattle like a rattlesnake which was uh, a spielberg creation really fun yeah that Those was not, scary yeah that was not mentioned yeah. in the book Wayne Knight gets sprayed in the face, he goes into the car, and then there's another philosopher there that kills him. And then as he's dying, the camera pans away and goes on to the next scene. I mean, that's that's the movie in a whole in a microcosm. Yeah. There. Well, I love The book sped up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love I'll try to keep this short, but the way that his character experiences everything going wrong too, right? Like there's the storm he loses his glasses, he misses the turn, he runs into a felled tree, and he eventually drops the can with the embryos. Like, that's like chaos theory in a microcosm of like what the whole movie is trying to say. And like the whole movie, like we talked about coincidence earlier, but like the one coincidence that kind of sets it all off is that he's he shuts everything down. Yeah. Like, that's kind of what sparks the domino effect. It's just, I think that's just a fun, you know, he's a greedy person that tried to exploit this technology, and that's the danger of the technology that's worth so much money. Exactly. Anyway. Dr. Grant is a piece. God damn. He was really good. In what? In the movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that actor. I, have, I literally have Sam, that written Sam Neill. Okay. Oh, and it also, um, the, the relationship between Dr. Grant and Dr. Sattler makes a lot more sense in the movie because they are together rather than in the book where they're like, it's like on again, off again, but like she's his student. It's like a weird Oh, I didn't. Thing. Were they like, on again, off again? I didn't no, get that. No, no, no. Like, I think like Timmy asks oh, yes. Dr. Grant and he's like, no, she's my student and she's engaged. But it's like, clearly there's like a sexual tension there. Yeah. So it's like, like, I don't know. Why not just simplify it and have them like either not be together or be together? Like, right. It was like a weird thing that's not really yeah. fully explained. And in the book, Grant likes children. That's a yes. direct quote saying that he liked working with kids and teaching kids and in the book, he forms a friendly rapport with Timmy almost immediately. Yeah. Where in the book, his whole arc is learning to be... The movie. Uh, and, you know, in the movie, sorry, his whole arc is that he learns to be both a father figure, but also he learns to like kids right. and to recognize the wonder and awe that they see with dinosaurs, but he knows that dinosaurs can't be an actual living thing in the environment, so he wants to protect them from the danger. Yeah, speaking of kids, I always wondered, like, why is there a kid on the dig in the beginning, though? Like, why is there a kid? Are they a, that do you looked, think a tourist? That looked like a tour, or yeah. Something? That was very weird to me. But I, speaking I of, that, oh, but. that's a great scene. That's a... That sets up the Velociraptors. Yeah, exactly. And how they're a real threat. Yeah. Um, You're alive when they start to eat you. Oh, yeah. man, so good. So good. So good. Okay, my one, I'm going to say one more thing. The only thing that I wish that they had done, this is such a stupid little thing, but you know how the Universal logo comes out in the very front, in the very beginning of the movie? Yeah. Why did no one think to make that Pangea? rather than the actual logo. Oh, that would have Wouldn't been... Wouldn't that have been a fun little twist That would have logo? been smart. That would have been smart. Or they should have had the world come out and then like a meteor come yes, and strike it. that would have been fun. Yeah. I just think that it's just like a little tweak. Although maybe my ignorance is showing because maybe the dinosaurs didn't live when Pangea was a supercontinent. 
I don't know. I don't know. It, it was <laughs> maybe I have my. It was a long time ago. It was at least a few thousand <laughs> years ago. So. Millions yeah. of years. Huh? Millions of so. days. Millions. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. So final rating for the book and the movie. I think where it's clear, we both have four stars for the movie. This is one of our both of our favorite movies of all time. How about the book? The book was really fun. It wasn't perfect, so I'm gonna give it a three out of four. Yeah, I I wish I had read it. It's kind of not fair that I I'm rating it just on my listen and how I mentioned earlier that you need to really read it in order to be focused. But the book, the first half is much stronger than the second. I really didn't enjoy my time. I got pretty bored in the second half. So I'm gonna go two out of four uh, okay. for the book. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Averages out to a two point five for the book. So that's a recommend. That's a recommend. Oh, yeah. I've, I've told multiple people to read this because it's just a fun read. Mm-hmm. All right. Well. That was fun. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Rate and review and subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, we appreciate all of our fans. Thank you for reaching out. In fact, we have a couple of upcoming episodes where we're going to be guest hosting on some other podcasts. So yeah. stay tuned for those. I don't, I'm not going to release any specific information yet. But we're really excited and we really appreciate when people reach out to us because, you know, we don't want to be isolated. We love talking with other people about this stuff. So Yeah, this is the next step in the evolution, ooh, evolution ooh. of our podcast, going yeah. on other people's podcasts. Yeah, taking over other people's podcasts. Yeah. So anyway, we're really excited about that. Uh, keep sending us suggestions because we don't know everything. And yeah, uh, I guess that's about it. <laughs> nice. See you on the next one. See ya on the next one.